Welcome to the Forward 40 Podcast, where we highlight the experiences of 40 women of color on the rise in the nonprofit and social enterprise sectors. This is an ode to our foremothers, a healing circle of our unique experiences, and a bridge of insight and wisdom across generations. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Forward 40, when I say we have guests that truly, truly have phenomenal experience, I tell no lies. Today, we have Manakshi Menon, who is the Chief Development Officer at Groundswell Fund. And for all of our listeners, I mean, Manakshi, she has worked in 30 countries, y'all, 30 countries across five continents. So, Manakshi, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to get into it today. Yes, I am too. I am too. Um, You know, you shared with me and you described your story as one of someone who's pretty ordinary with the chance to do extraordinary things. And I couldn't agree with you more. <laughs> you know, like extraordinary indeed. <laughs> Can you give us a brief snapshot of your journey to development and just the the space of um, you know, philanthropy and nonprofit? Sure, absolutely. Um, so I think, you know, my journey starts as one that's personal. And when I say extraordinary, I think it's kind of more in the context of where I came from and folks in my family dreaming that one of us one day could maybe go out and have opportunities like the one that I have, Mm. I've had. So um, I am the child of immigrants from India and Malaysia. Um, My father came to the U.S. in 1970. And so this year is his 50th anniversary of um, immigrating, which is kind of an interesting year to be reflecting on you know, that journey. Um, My mom came, (laughs) yeah, right. And my mom came in 1980. And uh, most of my family lived abroad, um, especially on my father's side. Um, Folks have not had a lot of opportunity. Um, A a lot of my aunts didn't have a chance to finish school or, you know, have a career. And so me having a chance to go to college and, and ha- be able to visit all of these places and work in all these places has been um, really extraordinary. And I think beyond all of our wildest <laughs> ideas, and, and I definitely carry all of them with me. But I started my career about 15 years ago, while I was still in college as a community organizer working on water issues. Mm. And through that experience, had the chance to start kind of connecting this interest I had in community-based work and organizing to the global experience I had growing up. Um, And I grew up both in the U.S., but also in Singapore, Malaysia, and India. Um, And so from there, I kind of became a field researcher, and I had the chance to work on um, Darfur issues in Sudan. Um, And then in 2009, I went, uh, I had a chance to be a fellow at the Center for Khmer Studies in Cambodia, um, and which was a really fruitful experience for a variety of reasons, but also because 2009 was the 30th anniversary of the fall of the Khmer Rouge, Mm. um, and a key part of my experience was, um, was, was observing the Khmer Rouge Tribunal, which was going on at the time. Um, which also, you know, I was really interested in transitional justice and human rights work. Um, and then in 2011, um, I became the executive director of a really small global health nonprofit called Gets, And that's when um, I kind of fell into both philanthropy and fundraising. And I think what's funny is that I didn't think of it as <laughs> Um, either fundraising or being in philanthropy at the time. You know, I thought of myself as a public, yeah, I thought of myself as a public health professional who was, you know, trying to really place a spotlight on community-based work and on um, expertise on the ground um, 
in the global south as opposed to, you know, exporting expertise from from the U.S. or from Europe. Mm. But, you know, a key part of our work was grant making and capacity building and providing resources. And a huge part of our theory of change was this idea that folks on the ground are the ones that have the expertise. And I think through that experience, that's how I became really invested in organizing as a key part of development, but also um, felt like my greatest impact could be through um, mobilizing resources for folks as opposed to like being a leader in a movement myself. Mm. And so for the last nine years, I guess. I've been kind of in various roles in development, um, trying to mobilize resources for folks and facilitate um, change for social justice movements as kind of like a facilitator. Wow. Wow. Just, uh, yeah, I am just blown away. Truly, truly am. Um, I forgot to acknowledge, you know, the the other connection that we have as being Smith College alums and uh, yes. <laughs> so, you know, like when you were speaking about like the organizing work that you were doing around water issues that was happening while you were at Smith. Um, and this is just, you know, for you to be another woman of color to come from uh, that environment for those that are not familiar, Smith uh is historic women's college and it's predominantly white. Uh, and also for you to be a woman of color in the space of development. I mean, truly, truly uh, phenomenal for sure. Um, to, to the point about grassroots organizing, you know, I, I guess people wouldn't think that there would kind of be synergy between grassroots organizing and development work. Can you, I guess, share how your experience with organizing has informed the lens in which you approach development? Yeah, absolutely. So I guess from from my perspective and the perspective of those that are that I'm in both movement and community with, hmm. intersectional organizing, which is guided by a race, class, gender, and decolonization lens has played and is playing a critical role within every major social change movement. Um, And that's, you know, everything from raising visibility around issues to um, winning with bold strategies, uh, mainly because um, this sort of form of organizing refuses to leave any person behind. Mm. Um, And I think, you know, that's kind of the, that ethos is what, I think um, a lot of us who are in this kind of progressive space of philanthropy are trying to bring to it Mm -hmm. and trying to think rather than think of it as development or fundraising, think of it as donor and funder organizing. Mm. And so, you know, how I think I've brought that lens and I should say, you know, it's not just me. There's a whole host of folks that are like minded that are doing this work, but it's, you know, trying to analyze the ways in which, philanthropy is really complicit in the systems of inequity that we see in the world, but particularly in the U.S., um, and how in order to, for all of us, to move towards greater equity, um, those systems not not only have to be dismantled, but that philanthropy has an impact on who has the resources to engage Mm. in the work to dismantle inequity and at what scale. Yes. Yes. Um, yes. And I think Amani, you and I have talked about this a little bit, you know, the fact that if you look at foundation giving only 0.6% of foundation giving was targeted to women of color, Mm. you know, and that, and women of color is a really broad Correct. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm sure if you disaggregated the the data, the the funding that's going to black women or to black trans folks or black um, gender expansive folks is even more minuscule. And, you know, if that's what's happening in, in the foundation and institutional giving landscape, the record for individual donors, I'm I'm sure, is comparable or maybe not as even not as good. So we're trying to think about, especially in this moment of Mm COVID-19 and 
um, Black liberation uprisings, how we can assemble like-minded folks, especially those that have the capacity to give at really high levels, and to have them think about how they can direct those resources to folks on the ground that have the greatest expertise and can move these resources for greater equity, which, you know, especially in the U.S. is overwhelmingly, um, you know, the, the folks that are at the helm of that, they're overwhelmingly Black women. Yes, yes. And so yes. how do we organize folks around that? Yes. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing that. Because, um, I, I mean, listen, grassroots organizing is not easy work. It is not for the faint of heart at all. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, um, it's there, there's a lot of, um, there, there, there's a lot of stretching that you do when you are an organizer in terms of, you know, um, connecting with people where they are meeting people where they are, and then, you know, just pushing for policy advocacy. I mean, it is not, um, it's, it's kind of like the unsung work and also, um, grossly underpaid. Uh, and when you're looking at those who are on the ground in communities that are doing this work, yes, they are primarily black, brown, um, people and, um, they're not getting those resources to sustain themselves to do the work, uh, and to just further the change that they know so well within their community. So again, thank you for uh, sharing more of that because um, I, I know that sometimes uh, those that are organizers, you know, they may prefer to still be in the organizer space and then other times because they are thinking just about their longevity in the space, uh, you know, just kind of like their own capacity, how they can shift or, or, or kind of like leverage that experience into other realms yeah. uh, of, of the work. So um, thank you again for sharing that. Um, so when you started mm-hmm. off at Getz, you know, you were working grants and advocacy and you had the privilege of being an executive director at a very early part of your career. Um, when, most people are seeing, you know, like job descriptions for executive directors. They're looking for people who have like 15 years of experience already and, you know, like X amount of fundraising experience under their belt before they're even considered. Um, so can you share more about like what you sacrificed to be in that role? And what were some of the challenges that you faced when you were at the helm of leadership? Sure. Um, Well, when I first came on board, I didn't come on board as an executive director. Um, There was an opening for um, a women's health coordinator role Mm -hmm. at this very small organization. And so I didn't come in right away as the executive director, but there was a a leadership change like within four months, four or five months of me joining. So that's kind of how I um kind of fell into this role and I think it's my experience is in some ways is pretty indicative of how really small nonprofits operate you know at that time we eventually grew to be a little bit bigger but the operating budget is like between 250k to 500k per year Mm -hmm. um like you know one to two staff maybe and like a series of volunteers um, you know, very involved, small board, um, who also picked up like a lot of in-kind, you know, provided mm-hmm. in-kind support in the form of office space and that sort of thing. So I think, you know, what about my background that they found appealing was that even though this was a network itself that they supported was really broad and across 45 countries the folks on the board and those who were working there were all white. Mm. So I think I was one of the first, I was the first woman of color for sure to be on staff. Mm. Um, Maybe one of two uh, people of color who had been on staff in, you know, at that point, I think they had been around for um, eight years. Wow. uh, Because they were founded in 2003. Mm -hmm. So you know, even though I didn't have 15 years of experience and didn't come with like tons of fancy degrees, I spoke five languages. Mm. I had been a part of the health system that 
um, this organization was trying to affect change on, and that was really valuable. And so I think in terms of advice to give to folks, especially, um, you know, women of color, I think that oftentimes we undervalue the expertise that we do have Mm -hmm. because it doesn't look like what white spaces have deemed valuable, like, you know, you know, X number of years or this degree or, you know, what have you. Yes. But I was, I brought a lot that that organization didn't have and really needed. Um, And in terms of like challenges, I think it's unfortunately a lot of the challenges that many of us in this field face, you know, on my first day of work, a board member told me that they hired me because I was a woman of color and Mm. could understand our partners better which unfortunately was true, but was also really alienating and um, offensive, especially like, you know, right out the gate. Um, And I was definitely paid less than the the folks that um, had come before me. Hmm. Um, I think I was making like $31,000 when I started the role. And that eventually went out. No, (laughs) no. Yeah. Oh, and I, I say that I mean that just because, you know, I think now in 2020, we're starting to talk a little bit more about pay equity exactly. and being more transparent about um, about like how much folks make. But yes. like that is not it's certainly above minimum wage, but that is a very difficult yes. uh, salary to, 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 to live off of and. You know, it was kind of just like, yeah, she can do that. She can do this because, you know, that's what someone in, at her level should be able to do. And, um, you know, there's a whole host of unfairness around that. So and I didn't think to to challenge it because mm-hmm. I believed them that, you know, I wasn't worth more. Wow. Which was completely untrue. Right. Yes. Yes. So. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So that was kind of a, a definitely a sacrifice that I made. And, um, and I would, I would advise, I think, especially for folks who are early in their career or who are right out of college that are trying to decide, you know, what, how, how to negotiate around pay there, you are wor- worth more than you think. Mm-hmm. And if organizations or companies are making you feel like that's enough for someone at your level, especially if you're living in a place like New York City or where, you know, or anywhere like that where cost of living is really high. Um, I think we need to be doing like a little bit more investigation around that. Yes, yes, um, yes, yes. I completely yeah. agree, completely agree. And even with workspaces and organizations and companies shifting to, um, because they have to, right, uh, you know, like remote working, there's still things that... Um, just for your quality of life, even if you're working from home, um, that you need to do not, um, I would encourage, you know, echo what you're saying. I would encourage people to still, um, advocate for themselves. Uh, and you know, I I guess similar to you, I learned the hard way as well. Right. It's just like, you're kind of like coming out of college. You're just like, okay, well, this is, I guess this is what I, I, I should take it. It's either like take it or leave it. <laughs> um, right. I don't necessarily have all of these years of experience or like you said, like the fancy degrees. So, um, but just amazing how despite, you know, you taking an extreme pay cut um, and uh, <laughs> I mean, oh my goodness. Um, how well, you- was it? It was the recession as well. That was the other thing. So I, I felt like. Oh, oh, yeah. I, 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 I remember. Oh, yes. Well. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what I'm talking about. Like, I took, you know, just like, okay, I guess, you know. Um, and at that time, actually, yeah. for me, during the recession, um, I was also helping to support just my household. Like, my mother was laid off as well. Yeah. So, again, factoring. Right. Um, those are things that when an organization is, like, extending salary, it's like, you don't really know. Um, the demands that are actually on individuals and um, the kind of like the personal commitments that they have beyond just, you know, what's within that, that, that role. Um, But I, I truly admire that the fact that you were able to 
rather quickly, right, um, pivot and adapt to be in this role, to position yourself as a leader in the space. And, and though you weren't paid equitably, um, how you were able to just leverage that title as executive director in your career. I mean, that is just uh, amazing, amazing. Um, so that that sacrifice has paid off and it is paying off. And uh, I commend you for it. I know it didn't feel good <laughs> while you were going through it. No, <laughs> thank you. Um, so, you know, when we spoke, you said, you know, I'm a brown woman with a Western education, you know, whose father came and arrived here uh, in the U.S. in the 1970s. You know, it's the 50th anniversary um, of his arrival here. And you shared how, you know, you see the parallels between the movements for peace that were um, taking place in India and also kind of just like racial justice movements um, that are more prevalent right now here in the U.S. Um, can you elaborate on on this kind of like what you were seeing as the parallels and how did that, you know, how did that parallelism, you know, show up in your life and in your career, I guess, in connection with the, you know, the migration story um, and just uh, your, your upbringing? Sure. Um, well, I think kind of the, the first thing right off the bat for, that impacts me in the ways that, um, you know, racial justice and movements for peace, both in the U.S. and elsewhere are connected is just by virtue of my immigration story. Mm -hmm. So anyone who, you know, I come from a a South and Southeast Asian uh, background and anyone from South Asia who is able to immigrate to the U.S. or is the child or grandchild of immigrants from that region um, were able to immigrate post-1965 because of the work that Black civil rights leaders did um, and the kind of advocacy they did on behalf of the Immigration and Nationality Act of 1965, um, which abolished the national origins formula that this country had and the quota system that um, barred folks from Africa and Asia uh, to come over. And so, you know, my father is a direct beneficiary, and my mother as well are direct beneficiaries of that. Um, and I think in terms of, and that obviously has, has that changed the trajectory of my life in terms of, um, you know, gender equity, certainly, mm-hmm. um, and access to education, access to, to healthcare that was better than, than what I perhaps would have had, um, and just, you know, a whole host of other career opportunities that I may not have have had access to just given who, um, you know, who the opportunities that my family had mm-hmm. and continue to have um, back home. Um, but I also think in terms of like thinking about, uh, I think a lot, I've been thinking a lot, especially in, in light of the uprisings that we've been seeing on how to be a better non-Black co-conspirator, not mm. just an ally, but um, a co-conspirator Ooh, in I more like social justice. <laughs> yeah, I wish I could say that I, I'm, I'm the one that came up with that, but there's, you know, a whole host of organizers that are thinking about, um, you know, either, I think some folks call it being an accomplice mm-hmm. or being a co-conspirator. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I think in, in South Asia in general, um, there are a whole host of issues around colorism, around um, anti-blackness, around um, casteism mm-hmm. um, that are that you know I think individually more progressive folks have been investigating for a long time, but this moment has really you know I think there's now a critical mass of us, and we're all. And those of us who kind of believe that these systems and ideologies need to be dismantled are trying to investigate those things a little bit more and bring about change in our communities across the diaspora so that we can be better accomplices and allies because the work that Black folks around the world have done has created greater equity for all of us. but I think I, I'm also seeing a lot of parallels between the work that, particularly in the U.S., that organizers are doing 
for Black liberation and the kind of political situation in general in India in particular right mm. now. Mm. Um, India is governed by what I would call, who I would call um, a Hindu fundamentalist prime minister. Um, and the political party that he belongs to is also, uh, we call it Hindutva, is also Hindu fundamentalist in nature. Mm. By ideology, it is deeply casteist. It is uh, Islamophobic. Mm. Um, it is perpetuating a lot of inequity in in the country. And you're see, we, we've seen this over the course of the last, since, he took office in 2014 and was reelected quite recently um, in a host of different ways. One is through the occupation of Kashmir and mm. the fact that I think come August, Kashmiris will have been living um, in a total communication blackout without access to like proper internet or I think even, um, you know, I think there is some, some bans or, oh um, or organizing on like, texting and just phone mobility um and so that is truly an occupation um in earlier this year in in new delhi and in, in the indian capital there was a, a muslim pogrom essentially that was carried out um both by the government but also by mm. the police mm. and the level of police brutality that was displayed um against Muslim populations and any, I would say also like co-conspirators from a variety of, of faiths mm-hmm. um, who tried to defend folks was on a really shocking scale. And in some ways is really similar to what the police brutality that oh, we goodness. have seen in the U S mm. um, through the uprising. Mm. Um, and then I think there's also just through the, the Dalit movement, um, there's a lot of, uh, synergy right now between Dalit communities and Black communities in mm. terms of um, in terms of ways in which um, liberation and greater equity need to be um, need to occur, and kind of lessons learned um, that Dalit folks are like taking back and trying to, to organize around caste, um, and so. For me, it's this really interesting context where there's so much synergy and we're able to see a little bit more action on a global scale take Mm -hmm. place on behalf of racial justice, Mm -hmm. both here and abroad. I think in some ways because of the internet, right? And social media and Mm -hmm. people being able to be connected through Zoom or Skype or, you know, any other number of ways. So in some ways, things are you know, I have a lot of hope seeing those connections taking mm-hmm, place, mm-hmm. but it also, there's just the level of challenges that we're all facing right now. It's just so extreme. Yes. And yes. so how do we, how do we move? And, you know, there's an urgency as well, Correct. especially with climate change in the midst of all of this. So how do we move towards greater equity on a, in a timely manner? My goodness. I, I just, Thank you for sharing that um, and educating me. I'm quite sure educating others um, just on just like that global juxtaposition between what's happening, you know, domestically in the United States and, you know, what's happening abroad. Um, And also for being positioned here in the U.S. and still being able to kind of like look towards, you know, um, you know, a country of origin of your family and be critical, which is not always easy to do. Um, and to offer like more, more like more of a progressive, um, mindset and reflection for, for change. Um, I know that I have spoken to friends and colleagues before, just kind of like this, the, the difference in, you know, across generations, like an intergenerational dialogue around what's going on in the world, right? And, uh, you know, like based on kind of like the era that, you know, their parents grew up in, or even their grandparents, um, the way that they are viewing kind of like the current context uh, with racial justice, police brutality, 
uh, reproductive justice, climate change, like it just, it, it depends. It, it just depends. And um, not only uh, are individuals feeling like they um, are fighting on behalf of a cause against a system that is deeply rooted in inequity and white supremacy and colonialism. Mm -hmm. Uh, But they're also faced with that in their intimate relationships with family and friends. So um, again, you know, just thank you for adding that perspective and providing um, some education for us and just also being critical in, in, in the work. Um, it's not like you're you're one to just collect a paycheck, you know. Like you, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I and I should say, I mean, there's like so many folks that are doing this work more directly. Who I'm, you know, I'm benefiting from their expertise and their generosity and in, in sharing it through Twitter and through you know Medium and mm-hmm. blog posts and um, you know those folks. Uh, I've learned so much from them and I'm grateful that I can, you know, talk to folks like you yes, and Lonnie who are yes. interested in learning and um, to help, you know, uplift the work that really they're doing and that I'm trying to figure out how, how I can be a better accomplice, co-conspirator, whatever we want to, you know, whatever we want to call it. But, mm-hmm. yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Um, and when you uh, kind of like the point of entry into the work, um, it was through the, you know, through the space of health, um, you were approaching it from a public health um, kind of like sphere. And in it, you you notice, like you shared with me, that you notice how much the cycle of poverty, you know, like it's just so prevalent and it impacts people's quality of life. When you, like in your work of how, how many countries again? Uh, 30? 30. <laughs> <laughs> in five continents, you know, like what... Um, I guess, what are some of the geopolitics that struck you the most? And um, can you share more about like instances where you noticed that parts of your identity were becoming more salient than others within that global context? Yeah. um, So I think for me, health was an entry point just based on experience, Um, you know, having lived and grown up in, in places where health systems weren't strong, you know, primarily because of colonialism and the need to, to redevelop mm-hmm. um, out after, in the aftermath of that. Um, you know, I saw the ways in which both for myself and for my family, um, just not having access to health, health services had such an impact. Um, and, and, you know, through, further study on the socioeconomic determinants of health, like the ways in which so many aspects of our lives are intertwined and impact our quality of life. You know, having good health is having, is gender equity. It is having access to healthy food and nutrition. It is having access to education. It is having access to, you know, quality water, and, um, you know, good sanitation infrastructure. Mm-hmm. And so for me, it just, you know, especially from a public health perspective, it, it was a key point of entry for because it was in some ways like intersectional. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, I in my work, I think what I was really struck by was the ways in which countries where um, I guess, well, one, just the impact that something like colonialism can have. Mm -hmm. So, you know, especially if you're looking at a country that was part of the British Empire, you know, anywhere from, you know, countries gained independence anywhere from, you know, the late 1940s all the way through the 1960s. And even decades later, the, you know, that extraction of wealth, of resources, of holding people behind in terms of education, um, it compounds all of these issues and the folks that are able to take step forward, take steps forward are the ones that kind of were better off to begin with. Mm-hmm, right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so I think that was really, in, that was really interesting to me in one in an area that I wanted to um, explore more and organize around. Um, I was also really struck by 
I was really taught, and I think many of us who go into any sort of international development are really taught that, like, you know, these are poor, quote, poor, impoverished countries. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They don't, there's no expertise on the ground. There's no resources. Like, our job is to, like, teach them kind of in the light of this, like, white savior kind yes. of stuff. Oh, gosh, yes. <laughs> and, yeah. <laughs> and what I saw, like, you know, irrespective of if it was Nicaragua or South Africa or Botswana or Uganda or Nepal, was that especially on the community level, there was tremendous expertise. And that expertise didn't necessarily look like having a fancy degree or, you know, some of this other stuff that we had talked about. Although sometimes it did, to be honest, Mm -hmm. you know, folks, there were that that did exist on the ground as well. But what wasn't there were the resources to be able to develop either at scale or at a more rapid pace. Yes. And that was happening because those resources were being overwhelmingly hoarded, Mm. um, you know, through philanthropy, through like government giving systems, um, primarily by like former colonial countries or through, um, you know, folks in either Europe or North America who were, who had the power to make some of these decisions. And so I just saw time and time again, how even like in do-gooding, it wasn't the right people at the table making decisions or giving out resources. And the offerings that were being made, it was just so clear to me that there weren't enough people from local communities that were being consulted. Mm, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. and I was part of that as well because I, you know, I had been fed and and internalized this idea. And so I think a huge part of my trajectory of my own career, which I'm still going through, um, is this idea of unlearning and trying mm-hmm. to figure out where you actually fit in. And in terms of my identity, I think I definitely felt a huge responsibility to be in, be a co-conspirator or an accomplice. And, um, you know, once I realized that I was kind of perpetuating systems on the ground, mm-hmm. um, you know, wanted to dismantle and get out of those roles and have partners who were on the ground to be in, have that power instead. Um, I think there was also there, there was a reckoning for me of understanding that even though I had grown up abroad, even though I have really close ties to to countries that I have both lived in, um, have family in, or mm-hmm. have worked in, that I am still American mm-hmm. and have a Western education and a Western um, frame of reference on a lot of things, mm-hmm. and that that has a lot of privilege mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and, you know, trying to understand how to dismantle that, even though, you know, I don't always feel privileged here at home and, you know, have to fight, you know, a whole host of prejudice. Mm-hmm. Um, in this other context, there was a lot of, even though I, you know, that's a key part of my experience, I was really privileged in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. And so I really needed to investigate how I could, be a better, again, a better accomplice and co-conspirator. Thank you. Thank you. Um, And also like in those spaces of international development, were you seeing others that looked like you? A great question. Um, So in terms of like, because I was in a lot, I did a lot of community-based work, mm-hmm. either through like technical support or through like direct grant making. Mm-hmm. And so in those spaces, um, like our partners definitely were folks for, from the ground. But in terms of like decision-making, no, absolutely not. Like mm-hmm. I was at a lot of tables with mostly white people, mostly white men, like, you know, 30, 40 years, my senior super dismissive, um, mm-hmm. despite my title and expertise that I brought, like, why are you here? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, what could you possibly add to this discussion? Um, mm-hmm. And I think, you know, over time, 
they they saw what I added and I kind of it it was difficult for me but I tried it was an early lesson in kind of learning how to take up space yes, yes. even if it felt uncomfortable yes, yes so yeah thank you thank you and that's not taking up space is not it, it's not easy when you're up against you know as soon as you said you know 30 40 years your senior and you gave the profile, you know, I rolled my eyes because, you know, like I had, I had several pictures of just like, oh my goodness, like organizations and companies. It's like, oh my goodness, can you all just get it together? And then also like kind of in this international like space, it's just like, have you not realized the damage that you've done <laughs> with colonialism? Exactly. Like we don't need you yeah. at the table like this or at all. <laughs> I know. I know. Oh my goodness. Well, like two examples come to mind for me. One that's kind of in, in, in line with what we're talking about. One was I, there was this project that we were working on in Cambodia for to essentially like help train um, like larger numbers of uh, community health workers mm-hmm. and there was this one partner of ours who was um, a white American man who I was working with he had a ton of knowledge on medicine and had worked in the region I think like in the 80s and so he was kind of propped up by our board as like a key um, expert in the area which in a lot of ways he was but you know I have this distinct memory of asking him you know, do you, do you speak Khmer or Vietnamese? Hmm. Um, because, you know, I think, I, I don't know the partners as well that we're working with as you do, but in my experience, that's going to be something that's important. So if you don't, we need to make sure that we have you know, translation or something mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. And his response was, well, I don't speak Khmer, but I speak French. So I feel like that should suffice. Oh, <laughs> and the just the audacity of that and the the ways in which it is just steeped in in racism and colonialism was just it, I should have I should not have been astounded but I was oh my goodness oh disgusting <laughs> it's so flippant just yeah. to like I don't speak that but yeah. I speak this so that should be okay <laughs> like, yeah exactly oh my goodness and this, and this is this is not like you know India, where English, even though it's our colonial language, really is like a lingua franca, mm-hmm. or it's not like West Africa, where folks are like really steeped in, in French, like, you know, the people that spoke French in Cambodia were mm-hmm. killed because they were, you know, de- they were killed by the Khmer Rouge because many of them were um, from like, quote unquote, educated classes. Mm. And so, you know, the Khmer Rouge had a and there's not been, I think there are some folks that speak French now, and I'm sure there's, you know, as Cambodia redevelops, that mm-hmm. is a culture that, you know, folks are, are accessing. But it's not like there are really high numbers mm-hmm. of people that, that, that have that experience. So it was just so, um, I don't know, there was a whole host of things that 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 brought out for me and then the other the other one was um in terms of identity um I was working with a white woman who was doing a lot of um again like health worker capacity building work in Tanzania mm-hmm. and she was kind of venting to me about the sexism that she felt like she was oh, facing Jesus. from one of our partners <laughs> and I just I had this moment where you know, I, what I wanted to say to her was like, I'm sure that some of this is sexism, but have you investigated the fact that, you know, you are a white woman in this space yes. and that some of this has to do with the dynamics of, of race yes. and colonialism? Yes. Um, but she had such a blinder for that and had clearly never investigated that. Um, and it was just really interesting. And I And I think also speaks to the ways in which folks that are doing this work, either Americans or Europeans, mm-hmm. are not, you know, even in their training, they don't have any sort of classes on cultural competence um, mm. that really asks them to investigate privilege, to investigate race. Um, and like, especially with the Europeans I worked with, like, they are really reticent, not everyone, obviously, but lots of folks are really reticent to continue to um acknowledge the role that colonialism um, plays mm. 
in in this work. And I think that's definitely something that needs to change and definitely has impacts on resources being mobilized on the ground. Yes, yes. And thank you for giving the perspective of a white male and also a white female. Um, uh, Because, (laughs) you know, kind of, uh, depending on what sector you're in, right? And um, I guess like what the focus area, there may be more of a dominance there in terms of, you know, like maybe it's majority white, right? Um, But in terms of whether it's predominantly male or predominantly, you know, female or whatever, um, it's, it's still, that stuff still plays out. Right. Um, and I, yeah, I appreciate absolutely. you naming that um, and offering up those two those two examples. Um, I when we connected before, um, <laughs> I actually you had mentioned to me this episode of Insecure and um, mm-hmm. another friend of mine had mentioned the same episode. And I was like, OK, it's time for me to watch this episode. <laughs> It's like she mentioned it the day before yeah. uh, that that I spoke to you. Um, and the episode is uh, when Issa's uh, friend Molly goes on vacation uh, with her boyfriend. And, mm-hmm. you know, there's this interaction uh, where I believe she's going to, you know, she's asking for a towel. And the response that she received from the, you know, kind of like the attendant was different from what her boyfriend's brother had uh, received. And then there's this exchange between her who's black. And um, I know he's of Asian descent, not quite sure what country um, right now. Uh, And just kind of like the, was she, you know, uh, over-exaggerating and, you know, just becoming too angry about the situation and just like reaching, um, you know, because of the, you know, like how she was received um, and the interaction that she had. And it made me kind of uh, reflect on just the distinctions of, you know, how the broader term of people of color, you know, how we experience the world. And this so happened, this episode happened, like she's traveling outside of the country. Um, And you had pointed out, like, we don't tend to see ourselves traveling and how important it was to to see that and also in those differences whether it's because of racism colonialism as you named and anti-blackness you know it it impacts how we even navigate the world professionally so I guess as you're recalling on that episode like what struck struck you the most um and why is representation so important in your work yeah. Um, well, first, Imani, thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to talk to you about Insecure. Absolutely. <laughs> um, really, yeah, I love Insecure and probably talk about TV too much. Know, <laughs> but um, this episode in particular was just, I loved it for so many reasons. And one of them was like what you said, um, it is so rare to see BIPOC folks traveling Mm -hmm. and like and for joyful reasons um and so to see that and for it to be an episode centered especially going like americans going to a place like mexico like that is usually such a i don't think i've ever seen uh an episode where it wasn't white folks going to mexico like Mm -hmm. to cancun i think this episode was in puerto vallarta Mm um but it was it was so beautifully shot. They were like for a lot of the episodes, like clearly having the time of their lives, yes. <laughs> like, you know, whether it was like dancing and margaritas mm-hmm. or like zip lining or what, what have you. And so seeing that joy reflected, mm-hmm. I think was just so powerful and important. Yes. Um, and if I felt that as a brown woman, like I can only imagine what that feels like for black women yes. to see that reflected mm-hmm. and for that, story clearly I think the other thing that really struck me was that that story was clearly being told from a black perspective Mm. and so like Mm -hmm. having that embedded into into this show Mm -hmm. is so important um and in terms of the incident um you know what I think there were a couple of things like obviously it was really upsetting but what I liked about it and this again speaks to the fact that it was written from a black perspective is that it is no one ever questioned um, 
other than like the characters at fault, that what Molly was experiencing was racism and anti-blackness. Mm-hmm. Like it is clear mm-hmm. from the, like, if there was a narrator, their perspective that this like beyond a shot of, of a doubt is racism and anti-blackness that mm-hmm. she is experiencing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's really important because there's no other name for it. Like that's what it was. Mm-hmm. And instead what it was, um, you know, like trying to investigate is this like interaction between, between, I think they're, I believe they're Chinese because they're speak, they speak, cause there's a line in which uh, I think Andrew and his brother are speaking in, in Mandarin mm. and Molly kind of explains like, can you speak in English so we can all understand what's happening? Mm-hmm. Um, so it's this interaction between people of color. And I think, you know, one of the things I think about a lot, especially in this moment, um, is is a non-Black person of color, um, you know, how have I benefited from the work that's uh, on equity that Black folks have done? Mm-hmm. How do I inadvertently perpetuate white supremacy, um, you know, through in the workplace, like through whether it's like efficiency or productivity or benefit from like model minority status and that sort of thing Mm -hmm. and so it was really interesting to see you know fellow Asian folks um who certainly experience racism and it has been institutionalized in the U.S. in various ways whether it's like the internment of Japanese people um in the 30s and 40s or in the Chinese Exclusion Act in 1884 um but the ways in which um you know, this man has clearly not experienced anti-blackness yes. mm-hmm. and how he's so willing to dismiss that for, oh, this was just like a small incident. You're just um, overreacting mm-hmm. when it, it's so much more than that. Yes. And I also really liked the fact that they made Andrew be the person that was just like, come on, you know that she, like, this is what this was. Like, mm-hmm. Don't be an idiot. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And as yeah. you're, like, recalling the episode, like, I'm just remembering, like, yes, I agree, like, the the shots of everything. Like, it, it was such a beautiful, <laughs> like, yeah. such a beautiful episode and uh, at a time when, you know, I know a lot of us would like to, travel more um (laughs) feels very nostalgic (laughs) um and yeah I it was the especially for her I I will say this for her to be a darker hued black woman right um that's also something and in a relationship uh with him it's like okay it's this is anti-blackness, yes, and then also there. There's also, I'm quite sure, you know, colorism that's at play here as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so yes, very, very, very powerful episode. And while that wasn't necessarily like the main part of that episode, um, it's still something like you said because it was told from a black perspective. It's it was just undeniable, um, and so. So just grateful, you know, just for uh, the writers and the production team for including that, especially at a time where, um, as I mentioned, when we say people of color, a woman of color, um, and now BIPOC, uh, which is Black Indigenous people of color, uh, for those that may be new to the terminology, as I was, uh, there are right. certain things that can get lost in uh, the kind of kind of the grouping and or overgeneralization. So um, for those that are not caught up, um, even though the season is over, um, <laughs> I would I would recommend uh, <laughs> you know just watching the whole season. Um, and that episode, I believe, oh my goodness, I feel like it was like one of the the final episodes because it was the first episode I think that was without Issa um, in it, and it's just focus on um on molly so it's like towards the end um but yes thank you so now you know like you are leading things at groundswell fund you're the chief development officer congratulations on Mm -hmm. the new role thank you uh can you you. share more just about the work of groundswell fund and 
what are some of the most pressing issues that you and the team are addressing right now? And I guess, like, how could we get involved and in, in support? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, like you said, I joined Groundswell in pretty recently in May. Um, so it was like one of those transitions while in quarantine and in the midst of uprisings <laughs> in an election year. So it's been really um, challenging and kind of the best way, um, kind of chaotic and strange just because of like all of us having to shelter in place indefinitely kind of at this point, right? Yes. Um, but also really rewarding just because, um, you know, for folks who might not be familiar with Groundswell, our mission is to strengthen U.S. movements for reproductive and social justice by resourcing intersectional grassroots organizing and specifically centering the leadership of women of color, particularly those who are Black, Indigenous, and, tra and transgender. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, so our work is kind of divided between direct grant making that we provide across four main funds. We do a lot of rapid response grant making. Um, we have a birth justice fund that is trying to center um, birth workers of color, um, like midwives and doulas, who are, um, you know, both working towards reducing or improving um, maternal health outcomes, mm -hmm. particularly for Black women, mm -hmm. but also in trying to, like, you know, raise awareness of the, the um, importance of the fields of midwifery and doula care. Yes. Um, we also have a, a catalyst fund um, and a liberation fund that are doing a lot of really great work um, in the context of both reproductive justice, but also, um, you know, the idea of trying to build capacity when it comes to, um, you know, electing women of color, Black women in particular, to, um, to into office. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and so it's been, um, I think, particularly at this moment where we're seeing, like, clearly a crisis of leadership at the federal level. Oh, my goodness, yes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the um, erosion of, you know, like, really um, the erosion of, our, of the norms in this country that have, um, you know, whatever greater equity we have seen over, over the years, mm -hmm. um, many of that has many of which has been eroded over the course of the last couple of years, um, we are feeling a huge need to move even more resources to the field. Mm. Um, we're in the process of uh, releasing our next strategic plan, which is a five-year plan, okay. um, which we call our blueprint. And the key component of that is moving $100 million to the field over the next five years. Mm, okay. um, and so, and the majority of which we are hoping to move to our Black-led grantees um, in particular. At the moment, about like 35% of our funding goes to, to our Black-led work, but we're okay. hoping to increase that to, to anywhere from 40 to 45%. Um, and to really, I think, you know, in this moment, double down on the work that we're that we're trying to support um, in terms of, you know, Black liberation. Mm -hmm. And I think we're trying to do that in a variety of different ways. Like there's clearly the grant making and the capacity building piece, which also might include um, increased resources and work around healing justice, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. which is important in organizing, as, you know, Imani, you pointed out earlier, but also climate justice and, you know, it's one of those intersectional areas that mm. um, if, you know, the community that, that it's going to impact the most is going to be communities of color. Mm -hmm. um, so how can we, you know, resource that even better? And then there, of course, there's the funder organizing piece of, you know, trying particularly in this moment to organize funders around being, you know, who's on your on your staff and your board, if you're a foundation or family foundation, like, do you have adequate representation and expertise? Mm -hmm. How are you moving your resources? Um, and if you're moving them to, as we said, only 0.6% of exactly. the funding goes to women of color, um, are you even doing that? <laughs> <laughs> if you are, 
um, who is comprised within this women of color category? Yes, what, yes. Um, mm-hmm. And where do black women, black trans communities, black gender expansive communities fit into that? Um, and can we, how can we support like the movement for black lives in this moment as well? And their um, fundraising challenge of $50 million that they've put out um, and organize other, you know, high capacity donors and funders to do the same. So you can support our work, um, you know, by word of mouth and, mm-hmm. you know, um, helping us raise visibility around our mission and yes. the issues that, that we work on and, mm-hmm. and our grantees, but also through direct investment, either through, you know, to Groundswell or to, to folks that are working with us. Great. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I, I mean, it, it sounds like, and it, I mean, it's true that there's great work that's happening at Groundswell and, um, it's much needed. Um, I mean, it was needed before this moment, right? Um, it's definitely needed, uh, even more so now. And just the, I mean, just the numbers, the statistics of what you, you mentioned, just in terms of, philanthropic giving and development, like where the dollars are going. It's like, well, if you're wondering why uh, there's a disparity, right. Or you're wondering why um, there's like cycles of poverty uh, and inequity. It's like, okay, well, where are you moving your dollars? Um, If you're moving, if you're moving your dollars to the quote unquote, more professionalized organizations that are, White led. Uh, I mean, like, how, how do you think that that's actually going to to shift uh, to you know, like, shift the scale towards better? Um, you're you're not putting the dollars in, uh, like, directly in into the hands of those that know their communities best and know the needs um, better than than you do. Um, so, uh, thank you again for being, you know, like an, an advisor and a leader on, on the team and, you know, just helping to to elevate the work of, of Groundswell and then also just like exposing us to more of that work so that we can be connected and also stay involved and also get educated, get educated as well. Yeah, um, absolutely. So, I mean, it has been such a pleasure uh, to learn more about your journey. It's such a beautiful, beautiful uh, journey. And I, as I had shared with you before, like, I really admire how you have been able to blend the international lived experience that you have, but then also the work experience to be at the point that you are in your career right now. Um, sometimes, uh, women and especially women of color may feel like, Oh, okay, well, I don't know what I'm doing. I guess, you know, like I'm working here, I'm working there. I don't really know how this is all going to connect in. (laughs) You know, it's like you're finding a way for, and you have found a way for, you know, um, your, like the different milestones that you were reaching throughout your career to connect. Like it's still in conversation, um, still very much fluid. Um, And I just, I just love how it's all coming together. Um, so Thank as you. you're and welcome. <laughs> just wanted to, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, but just wanted to like appreciate you as well, Amani. I so appreciate oh, thank like you. having the opportunity to be in conversation and to talk with you about all of these things that are so important and am in awe of your leadership as a black woman. Just, you know, you're, you're doing like 8 million things <laughs> and making the world a better place and also have time for conversations like this. So Thank you. And I appreciate you so much. No, thank you. Thank you. I, I appreciate you for appreciating me. And it it is very important <laughs> that, you know, this platform is as representative as possible. Um, and I thank you for taking out the time to connect with me prior to, to, you know, share more of your journey, yeah. um, you know, just in our time together today. And I'm so glad to be connected to you even beyond this work. Um, so uh, thank yeah. you. Um Been here. So you know that we close with the tea affirmation. Um, and yeah. I, I don't know if you really went to the teas at Smith. I know that I, I didn't. 
<laughs> I was. <laughs> I, I'm just gonna hey for any Smithies that are listening to this. Like one of the reasons why I created this platform is because I did not feel like the teas were representative of my experience or um, totally. the, the the people that I wanted to be around. So hey, <laughs> surprise, surprise. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> I guess with that, Manakshi, uh, what would be your tea affirmation for our listeners? So my tea affirmation um, is the the last two lines of the poem Invictus by William Ernest Henley. Um, and I chose this just because um, in my life, um, you know, I had the chance to work in South Africa and Nelson Mandela was such a inspiration to me. And the, the poem in general was one that he recited, I think on a daily basis, but in any case, really frequently while he was imprisoned on Robben Island. Um, And the affirmation would be, I am the master of my fate and the captain of my soul. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. Very familiar. I'm the master of my fate, the captain of my soul. Thank you so, so much for that. Um, How do we stay connected to you um, and also just the work of Groundswell? Yeah. Um, well, in terms of Groundswell, um, check out our website, our Facebook and our Instagram. Um, and I think we're, as we build capacity internally, we're going to be doing a lot more on those channels, mm, okay. especially in the lead up to the release of our blueprint, which is going to be in December. Okay. Um, and then in terms of me, <laughs> I am a really um, delinquent tweeter, but <laughs> find me on my Twitter um, at by underscore Menon and then on LinkedIn as well. Just me, Nakshi Menon. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. Well, thank you so, so much. It has been such a joy uh, to just have you and also have you as one of our 40. So excited. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much. And thanks to, all the, to everyone that's listening. I appreciate y'all so much. Beautiful, beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. Until we connect again, sip, sis, sila, share, and continue to serve.